So eschatologically, we could trace fulfillments of the covenant so far. I gave you some of those already, and you see the outworking of that during the period of Joshua and also the period of the Judges. So some of these fulfillments, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant starts with a seed that will eventuate into the family, and you could even include there the tribes that eventuate into a nation. So the the unfolding, you might say. Now, these are all partial. They're not ultimate. These are all partial fulfillments. Under Joshua, we have a nation, full-fledged. Common people, common constitution, and now common land. So uh, so you say, what what went partial right there? Was it the the family? No, nation. Okay, the nation. Okay. Yeah, but it's not the ultimate, because it still awaits Christ, and it still awaits the millennial kingdom. Palestinian, now they're in the land. Now they're in the land. And this is also partial. They'll be kicked out of the land a few times. But at least it's a partial fulfillment. Mosaic, you see times of obedience here and there to the covenant, but you also see disobedience. In fact, disobedience is probably more frequent than obedience. So covenants are fulfilled. It's also another preview of final judgment. And again, if you go to the book of Revelation, you're going to find final judgments. There's going to be an ultimate separation of evil. And I define judgments as God intervening to separate evil. And there are several of them. I gave you the example of the flood where he separates Noah and his family from the corruption of the culture and the flood destroys the culture. There's going to be an ultimate separation where Genesis 3.15 is ultimately fulfilled. And this is just one more judgment in a series of judgments. In fact, there's even judgments future from 21st century. And in the tribulation, we see hints of the same separating, the same judgments. And they're very bloody. What God called the children of Israel to do to wipe out the Canaanites was a bloody thing. Gruesome. Read Revelation 6, 8. That's very gruesome. 9, 15, 18, 14, uh, 9 through 11, in fact, the, uh, the Revelation 14 passage, the imagery is of a vineyard. And in a vineyard, you'd gather the grapes and put them in this vat or this container, and you stomp the grapes to squeeze out all the juice. The imagery that John is giving here, or God is giving to John, is that that's what it's going to be like when there's the final separating. It's like God just squishing the blood out of human beings. It's bloody, it's a mess, but it's a separating out. Judgment is a separating out. And he judges that that is destroying that that he loves, and he preserves also. So the tribulation is foreshadowed, I think, in what God is doing with Joshua. And ultimately, there'll be a judgment on Babylon itself. We talked a little bit about that. And that is bloody. It's the physical Babylon. Physical (laughs) Babylon, physical blood. Physical judgment. Yeah, read those verses. Eight and, 18, 8 and 9 and 19. Very bloody. And then ultimately Armageddon, where the blood is going to flow to the bridal's bits for 200 miles. We just have a foretaste of that in the destruction of the Canaanites. So we have a pattern or a situation set so that these future things... You can visualize them by reading some of these Old Testament things. We have patterns that are being set eschatologically. 
And the only difference I've already mentioned in terms of the judgment on Canaan is that Israel is God's instrument. Whereas in the tribulation, God's going to use astrophysical, geophysical phenomenon to affect the judgment. And he'll use the evil of mankind himself. But as far as Canaan, Israel is the instrument. So that's the emerging of Israel. Now they're a full-fledged nation. We have the origin, we have the emergence, and the third stage is the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Israel. So after the book of Judges, we have a movement to establish a kingdom with kings. So let's put that on our timeline. And that begins around, depending on where you want to start, about 1031. And I put that as, I think, let's see, is that Saul? Beginning of the reign of Saul. I think that's the beginning of the reign of Saul. Kingdom age. And this whole period, it's going to encompass First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And I think the overwhelming kind of emphasis of all this is the weakness of human kings. The weakness of human kings. We developed this in the biblical foundation for all things. And I went into great detail, but let me just summarize it here. So very quickly, we have a united kingdom. We have Saul as the first king. He's the king after the people's desire or the people's choice. And he's a failure, but God grants them their desire. Sometimes he lets you have what you want so that you can learn from your mistake. Saul is an example of that. He's the first king, but he's not the one that God has in mind. He has one after his choice. And even Samuel is unaware. You know, he goes to the sons of Jesse, and the first one looks like a great, he'll, he'll make a great king. God says, no, he's not the one. (laughs) He's not the second one. He's not the third one. This little scrawny shepherd boy that, you know, went behind the ears, he's the one. He's the choice that I have. So we have uh, the whole story of David, and we have this, just to kind of visualize it in Israel, that's the city of David, that little area in there. And in fact, throughout most of the Old Testament, most of the history of Jerusalem is right in that area. Yep, the city of David. And on a map, it's just that little part there. That That's a map of first century. This is what the city or Jerusalem looked like in the first century, that reddish area. And the city of David is just that little extension there. Uh, we'll visit that. In fact, we'll visit a lot of that on our Mount of Olives to the right there, Kidron Valley. And this is looking south, looking south. The city of David is that hill to the right. Silwan is a Palestinian village to the left there. And that's the Kidron Valley. To the right in foreground? No, in the foreground. Yeah. Are we gonna be all this is gonna be on no. Yeah, everything that we do here is on and this is from the Mount of Olives. The city of David is that portion goes all the way over there. Present day. And by the way, there's some excavations here that probably date back to the time of David that we will walk, we'll walk that site there. But, I'm saying this is the weakness of the kings. Even David had his issues. He was an adulterer and a murderer. And his son, who represents the high point of Israel's history, he had all of these wives. In fact, you can summarize his life with all of the W's. He had wine, women, worldliness, wealth. He had wisdom. You can include that W. But he was blessed with more wisdom than any other person, but he was one that didn't follow the wisdom that God gave him. And shortly, 
Well, right after Solomon, then the kingdom is divided. And then the, we see the degeneration after that. Uh, you have a kingdom to the north where Jeroboam establishes a new form of worship. And his capital was Samaria, which can be visited today, uh, although it's in Palestinian area. And he establishes a temple in Bethel and a temple up to the north there. It doesn't give the name there. It's up near the Caesarea Philippi area. Dan, tell Dan, from Dan to Bethel, to prevent the children of Israel go to Jerusalem, because then they might repent. So he establishes a, the sin of Jeroboam is he establishes a false religion. And if you study the kings, they follow after the sin of Jeroboam. In other words, they're all adulterous, they're all unbelieving kings to the north. Here's Tel Samaria again, and the kingdom is divided, and the kingdom to the south is Judah and Benjamin. And then eventually God destroys or takes the northern kingdom into captivity, and that's predicted in some of the passages we looked at in Deuteronomy, predicted ahead of time. And then we have the surviving kingdom to the south, and Second Kings 18 through 25 gives us the record on it. But eventually, those passages deal with the fall of the northern kingdom. And the surviving kingdom is the pinkish area there. So Israel occupied a very small part of the land. And then we have the discipline of the nation in scattering and exile. And we don't have any historical books, but we have Daniel and Ezekiel that give us some description of that. And all this is telling us that there's a need for... Not only a revived people, but there's also a need for a godly or a more godly king. In fact, a sinless king. And obviously, the southern kingdom ends in idolatry and captivity. There's the passages that refer to it. And what we have in these passages, we have all of the features of that kingdom that God has in mind. And I see these as very, very important. Every one of these features, in fact, I'll extend the slide and show you that all of these features are features of the millennial kingdom. Another reason why it can't be amillennial. All right. So let's take a look at them. Features of the kingdom. Number one, it involves a distinct nation. It involves the nation of Israel. The kingdom involves the nation of Israel. Now, it's kind of obvious when you're dealing with the Old Testament kingdom, but I think that's an important feature. The kingdom is God's people, the nation of Israel that he created, beginning with Abraham. Secondly, it involves a godly king. Now, David was not a sinless king. He was a godly king, king after God's own heart, in that he repented from his sin. Solomon begins as a godly king, but then fails. And then after Solomon, you have good kings and evil kings, and some of them are godly. and Some of them bring reforms, so you have... Josiah and Hezekiah, they brought reforms, but others degenerated until eventually the whole nation reached a point. God is patiently allowing sin to fester and to reach its full culmination, and then he intervenes. Remember the cycles of sin. He intervenes to judge. So you start with a godly king, and uh, God promised in the Davidic covenant, and by the way, this is just an extension of the Davidic covenant as well. There'll be security and peace, and the nation experienced security and peace at the end of David's reign because he conquered all of the enemies, and he delivered to Solomon a kingdom with security and peace, and during Solomon's reign, they were the world empire, and I think that was God's intent, that his people would rule the world, and under Solomon, they ruled the world, 
And you could almost say that had Solomon been faithful, perhaps the Messiah might have come and established his perfect kingdom, the millennial kingdom. But he's man, he's a man, he's human, and he had his problems, and God judged him and said he would bring the judgment in the next generation. All of these features and this kingdom is guaranteed by a covenant. So God legally binds himself to bring this kingdom. And as we've seen, all of the stipulations so far in all of the covenants are very, very literal, very material. The millennial kingdom will have all of those material aspects. And God fulfills them in the way that he explains them. You can't go to the bank and say, well, I'm going to take the monthly payment metaphorically. (laughs) It represents a large amount. And to me, $200 is a large amount, so that's going to be the payment this month. What's the bank going to say? No, we interpret it literally. You owe $925.35. We want every penny. God's going to fulfill his covenants to the penny, all right, literally. This is how we interpret covenants today or contracts. This is how God is going to interpret his covenants and fulfill them. So it's guaranteed by the Davidic covenant. There's going to be a presence of the temple, And that's spelled out in the Davidic Covenant. There's going to be great blessing, and it's going to be physical material. It's going to involve animals. It's going to involve productivity. It's going to involve rainfall. It's going to involve fertility and and children. Great blessings. And during Solomon, this is the richest time of Israel's time. They had silver wasn't even considered valuable. There was so much silver. That's what the text says. And, And all of these... Things made out of gold, and gold was abundant, and lots of animals. In fact, when they dedicated the temple, I can't remember, but they sacrificed thousands of animals, greatly blessed during that period of time, but nothing compared to the millennial. And Israel was to be that kingdom of priests. They were to be a missionary nation. God established a kingdom that they might reach the world. That was God's intent. These are the major features of that kingdom under David and Solomon. And then it began to collapse. Make sense? So eschatologically, it's a preview of the millennial kingdom. And let's use the same slide. That distinct nation is now a regenerated nation. This is the millennial kingdom. Only believers will enter. And the nation of Israel will be prominent. If you read the prophecies of Isaiah, the prophecies of Jeremiah... Minor prophets. Israel is the prominent nation in the millennial kingdom. In the Old Testament, they had a godly king. In the millennial kingdom, we'll have a sinless king. He will not fail. Sinless Messiah. Security and peace, Messiah will rule. And they will turn their swords into plowshares. In other words, there's going to be peace. All of the enemies are going to be subdued and they will not rise up until that final last rebellion at the end of the kingdom. So there's security and peace throughout the millennial kingdom. Literal peace. Literal security. It's guaranteed by the covenant and because it's guaranteed by the covenant, David is going to rule in the millennial kingdom. And there's other passages that support that. David's going to be there. There's going to be a temple presence. and There's a lot of passages that speak of full worship. And in fact, the nation's coming to Jerusalem to worship in a millennial temple. And by the way, Ezekiel, the last, what, how many chapters? Six or so chapters? Give great detail. 
dimensions and descriptions of that millennial temple. That's a millennial temple that Ezekiel was given a, a vision of. And remember, Ezekiel is writing when the Jerusalem temple had been destroyed. And what God gives Ezekiel is a future picture of that temple. There's going to be great blessing, greater than the era of Solomon. All the things I mentioned. Full crops, wealth, lots of children, even longevity. Isaiah 65.20 tells us that uh, if somebody dies at 100, they'll be considered uh, it's tragic, hinting at longevity. And a youth would be considered 100 in that Isaiah 65.20 passage. So material blessings. And during the kingdom... Israel will be a missionary nation. God will use them to minister to the nations. And believing nations will participate in the millennial kingdom. I gave you a passage on that when we looked at the scattering and we talked about the origin of the nations. So all of the features of the Davidic and Solomonic kingdom will be present in the millennial kingdom. What was your point uh, saying that David will be there? He will literally be in the kingdom. There's other promises of David being in the millennial millennial kingdom, resurrected. But was there a point to that? Well, that's part of what's guaranteed by the Davidic covenant. And I guess the point I'm making is to the very detail of even David himself. These others are part of the Davidic covenant as well. And it's guaranteed because God is the one that's going to fulfill it. In other words, he legally binds himself to every aspect Right. Yep. I've never heard that before. And then if David is ruling, then what's Jesus Christ doing? Well, Jesus is going to be over the whole kingdom. What's David doing? David is probably going to rule some part of Israel. But remember, Jesus even promises the 12 disciples in Matthew, what is it, 19:28, that the apostles are going to rule the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's going to be kind of a hierarchy. David is going to be under the Messiah, who's going to be ruler over the whole kingdom. David will have a part in ruling, and perhaps under David, maybe the 12 apostles rule the 12 tribes. And you'll have rulership as well if you remain faithful. The servants who are faithful, you're faithful in ruling. You'll be given more in the kingdom, exactly. We will have a part. We We could be part of his cabinet, Trump is... Selecting a cabinet today, and that would be a greater cabinet than the Trump cabinet. So is that detail in the Davidic covenant? It's not specified specifically in the Davidic covenant, but it is found in the prophets later after the lifetime of David, predictions concerning David ruling in the kingdom. For example, in Jeremiah 30, verse 9 is one passage. Ezekiel 37, the passage of the vision of the dry bones in verse 24 says the following and my servant david will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances etc and then at the end of verse 25 and david my servant shall be their prince forever so apparently david will be resurrected and will reign over israel in the kingdom the davidic covenant Second Samuel chapter 7. In fact, let's look at it. Here's the nature of it. It's unconditional. The parties, David and Israel. God, David and Israel. Stipulations that there'll be kings and a kingdom. And all of the aspects of a king that requires a king and a kingdom. In fact, let's turn to Second Samuel 7. 
And the term, it specifies as an eternal covenant. So it's even going to go beyond the millennial kingdom. Here's some major features of it. A secure kingdom. In fact, let's read. Let's start with verse 10. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. So that's a secure kingdom. That's peace. And there's also a temple. Actually, let me keep on reading because it expands. In verse 11, Even from that day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Security there. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. There's a temple. So there's going to be a temple there. Verse 12, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Now that looks forward to Solomon. But notice in verse 13 as well, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There's the house. There's the temple. So it's going to be a secure kingdom. It's going to have a temple. And then in verse 14, there's going to be a father-son relationship. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. So there will also be chastening or discipline. So the kings, and that looks forward to other kings as well, the kings will be chastened. Then beginning in verse 15, indicates it's an unconditional covenant. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So an unconditional covenant. It's going to endure regardless of the evil kings that, in fact, were part of Israel's history. And even in verse 16, implies that this throne that is established doesn't specify specifically, but it'll be in Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. Skip down to verse 18. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that thou hast brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in thine eyes, O Lord God, for thou hast spoken also of the house of thy servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of men, O Lord God. In other words, this is prophetic. This is not just the Davidic kingdom in David's time, but a Davidic kingdom that looks forward to the ultimate king, the messianic king. So it's Universal, but David is at the focus of it. So these are the features spelled out in the Davidic covenant. Secure kingdom with a temple in its midst, a father-son relationship between the kings and Yahweh. And part of that is that the kings will be chastened, but no matter what the kings do, it's an unconditional covenant centered in Jerusalem, and it is universal in terms of its reign. Looking ultimately, to Messiah. So in summary, the provisions, there are some provisions that are immediate in terms of David and David's son, Solomon, but it ultimately looks to an eternal throne 
where Messiah will be seated, which points to the future millennial kingdom where Messiah will in fact reign over the nation of Israel. And in the New Testament, we find out that that kingdom is a millennial kingdom. So some of the fulfillments have already taken place. Some of the fulfillments pertain to Solomon himself. Solomon established a kingdom in fulfillment of this Davidic covenant. He ruled on a throne, just as it says, and it was a Davidic throne. It was that throne that David first occupied, but uh, Solomon uh, would have followed. And there was a kingdom that was established, the kingdom of Israel. But that was only a partial fulfillment that awaits a future messianic kingdom. So it predicts the Messiah as well and ultimately will be fulfilled in the messianic kingdom in the millennial kingdom. So eschatologically, that presents to us the Davidic covenant that is very important, that has a partial fulfillment in the time of David and Solomon, but does not have its ultimate fulfillment until the far future, even future from our time. So that leads us to another implication of this period of time, and we've already talked about the role of the prophets, but let's return and but let's look at uh, the mission of the prophets. I've given you this slide already. We've already seen that one of their primary functions was to proclaim the, the word of God. They also anointed and judged kings, the writers of scripture. But in this period in time during the kingdom age, this is when many of the prophets arose and we see as there was decline in the kingdom, the prophets had a message of exhortation, motivation, bringing the nation back to their relationship to God. So it, during this period of time, we see more evidence that they were enforcers of the particularly Mosaic covenant. They reminded the nation of Israel, the stipulations of the covenant, and called on the nation to conform to the covenant. And in that, they also reminded the nation that God had been faithful in history. So it shows the faithfulness of God in that he has kept his part of the bargain, his part of the covenant. He promised that they would have blessings, and he poured out blessings if they were faithful. But he also promised that they would experience curses if they were unfaithful, and there were consequences to that. So in that, they were God's prosecuting attorneys as enforcers of the covenant. And they would show that what God predicted was, in fact, upon them in terms of the curses. So they defended the faithfulness of God, and they also exposed the sinfulness of the people, and they prosecuted the stipulations of the covenants and served as prosecuting attorneys of Yahweh himself. Now, it's during this period of time that we have some of the most important and most detailed messianic prophecies as well, and prophecies relating to the messianic kingdom. So the predicted messianic kingdom is one of the main functions of the prophets, and we find them in the writings of the prophets that wrote during this kingdom age. And just some of the broader ones, some of the most important ones, let's take a look at them. These are all eschatological. They all point beyond the kingdom age of the Old Testament and predict into the future 
even from our period of time into the Messianic kingdom. And very quickly, some of their prophecies pertain to the judgment of Israel. A specific passage, for example, Micah 6, 1 through 15. We have an example of a reeve in that passage or a, a legal proceeding where God acts as judge and pronounces judgment upon Israel. Secondly, we also have detailed prophecies concerning the coming ultimate discipline of that kingdom of the Old Testament where they went into exile and into captivity. Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12 is just one example of prophecy in that time frame. But also there's all of the detailed passages that we'll look at further when we talk about Israel. They're regathering and particularly in the land. For example, Ezekiel 37, 11 through 14. There's also extended passages, not only in Isaiah. For example, Isaiah 13 through 23 of judgment upon the nations. But Jeremiah has an extended section as well. Minor prophets, some of them devote particular attention to some of these nations that God will enter into judgment. Much of that is eschatological. Some of that even beyond our time frame. And very importantly, all of the details of the tribulation period, and we'll see a lot of detail, we'll spend plenty of time on that, but a lot of the detail comes from this period of time as well, even though Deuteronomy is very specific in giving a preview of the tribulation period. It's so specific that Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27, actually give us the precise time frame, and it divides it into two parts. So that's one passage, and there are a multitude of others that describe the tribulation period. And it's during that tribulation period that Israel's salvation is brought about by God himself. Only one passage that I'll give you on the slide here, Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27, but there are many, many more that speak of the restoration of Israel after their regathering in the land. That takes place during that tribulation period and the ultimate salvation where Paul says, all Israel shall be saved. All of that pertains to the time when Messiah arrives, when Messiah comes. And a passage that contains both the first coming, particularly the incarnation, and also the second coming in one sentence, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. It's when we come to the New Testament that we see that there are two comings. So many prophecies concerning Messiah, and some of them are together in terms of the first and second comings of Messiah. And also we have detailed passages concerning the messianic kingdom that is future even from our period of time. Only one that I'll give you here is Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. And again, we'll look at all of these in more detail when we deal with the individual areas of eschatology. So the final implication of the period of time is the kingdom collapses and we have the discipline of the exile where not only does the kingdom but the city of Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple and it leaves Israel without any hope whatsoever based on any efforts that they might make. Their only hope is that God will maintain his covenants and that God will also fulfill everything that he's promised. And since he's a faithful God, we can trust that he will. And the last phase of the Old Testament is the return, which is a partial fulfillment of some of these passages, the return of Israel back to the land 
and on our timeline we'll put our final event of the Old Testament period as the return, and that takes place towards the end of the Old Testament era. And that period of time, the return implies that God is preparing Israel for something. It's the main implication of this period of time. And and in terms of Israel, the exile prepares Israel by purging them of the idolatry. And we see that that was one of the things that God accomplishes. But there are several other implications of the return. One of the things that it implies, and in fact is specified specifically in terms of the historical time frame, is we have the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. And Jesus uses that phrase in Luke 21 to describe a period of time that I believe began with the Babylonian captivity, the Babylonian uh, exile, and it'll extend actually until the second coming. So the times of the Gentiles, you could place it if you need a specific date. First exile of Jewish people in about 605 BC by the Babylonians, and it would extend throughout the Babylonian period, through the Medo-Persia period, including the Greek period, Greeks replacing the Medo-Persian Empire, Medo-Persian conquering the Babylonian Empire, and then after the Greek Empire, the Romans dominated the scene, conquering the Greek Empire And then in the future, there will be a future revived Roman Empire preceding the second coming. And all of that includes the times of the Gentiles, where Israel is no longer a kingdom, no longer a world power, but they're dominated by Gentile nations. And it's in this context that we have the new covenant. And that is contained, we don't have time to look at it in much detail, but let me give you kind of an overview of it and look at some of the stipulations. It's during this exile period that God gives them a new covenant in the midst of the most depressing time in Israel's history. It's when they have no hope, they have no future, they've been totally destroyed, they're in exile. First of all, the nature of the new covenant. So this covenant obviously cannot be affected by man, and it therefore its nature, it's unconditional. The parties of this covenant are very clearly spelled out in Jeremiah 31, 31. And if you look up that passage, you'll see that God, obviously, is the initiator of the covenant. So he is a party to it. But very, very specifically, Israel and Judah, not the church. Now, later on, I want to come back to this and discuss the new covenant because there is an issue there that we need to kind of resolve in terms of It almost appears when we look at the stipulations that we are enjoying benefits, and I believe that we are, but we are not parties to the covenant. We experience the benefits via not only another covenant, but as a result of something that Jesus initiates in the New Testament. We'll come back to this. But it's very important that we understand that the parties of the covenant are Israel and Judah, the two of them, because it's at this time that they are divided which implies that there will be a uniting of Israel and Judah in the future, part of the new covenant. The stipulations, the major stipulations, include regeneration, also a massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit. These are the major stipulations. And there's some other details I'll spell out in a moment. The term of this covenant is everlasting. So on our covenant sheet here, we have 
The two major ones, the Abrahamic, which is like an umbrella that includes many aspects. We've already seen that part of the Mosaic Covenant specifies the giving of the land, and more specifically within the Mosaic Covenant is the Palestinian. That pertains to the land, the Palestinian Covenant. Now there's also a covenant that we just looked at, the Davidic. Now that specifies more specifically the seed. In other words, the descendants of Abraham will eventuate into kings that will obviously rule the earth, and they will be from the line of David that will eventuate into the Messianic king. Now when we speak of These covenants, the last one being the new covenant, that specifies the blessing aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. And we enjoy the blessings of the new covenant via the Abrahamic covenant that specifies blessings for the Gentile nations. Part of those blessings were fulfilled as a result of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we benefit from the new covenant via what Jesus did in blessing the Gentiles. So quickly, the stipulations, they include regeneration. That's Jeremiah 31, 33. Also in that passage would be reconciliation to a holy God. So a relationship is established. That's in verse 33, which would include fellowship, fellowship with the creator God. And in verse 34, an indwelling presence of God's word and of God himself which would include forgiveness of sins, also in verse 34. Implied in that is illumination, understanding of Scripture. The Scripture is written on the heart, Jeremiah 31. And there would be also implied in all of that a ministry of the Holy Spirit, a different knowledge of God, a regenerated, renewed heart that would enable us to understand the Word of God and knowledge of God. Also part of the covenant, not in Jeremiah, but more specifically Ezekiel 36. And by the way, Ezekiel 37 speaks of this knowledge of God as well. But in 36, 37 through 38, large population. Now that's more specific to Israel. Material blessings as well, pertaining to Israel in the future. When Israel partakes of the new covenant, that would be Ezekiel 34. Verses 25 through 36, also 36, 28 through 31, other passages in Isaiah, and even in Jeremiah. And also part of the New Covenant is the temple. That would be Ezekiel 37, verses 26 and 27. All of this eschatologically is designed to prepare the nation of Israel and essentially the world For the coming of Messiah. Prepares Israel, as I mentioned in the exile, by purging them of their idolatry. Prepares the rest of the world politically. The Roman Empire was able to establish a a peace, the Pax Romana, which allowed for the coming of Messiah in order that the gospel could be proclaimed in a peaceful environment where missionaries could be sent out. It also prepared the time for the social issues that needed establishment so that when Messiah came, there'd be a common language, for example. had roads that were built economically relatively stable, but there was some unrest 
that caused people to think in terms of spiritual things, desire the coming of a Messiah, obviously. Morally, standards were low, so there was a need for dealing with sin, as is always the case for mankind, the need for a Savior. And spiritually, the world was bankrupt. Even Israel was bankrupt in its leadership, in its traditions that had replaced some of the biblical principles that were laid out in the Old Testament. So that concludes our look at the Old Testament. So we will conclude our study of the Old Testament here, and that will leave for us in terms of our study in foundations a few things that we want to mention concerning the New Testament. And as Paul says, Galatians 4, 4 and 5, when the fullness of time came, in other words, everything was preparatory, everything was anticipating a particular period of time. And you could even go all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the fullness of time. What was revealed to Adam and Eve now is the unfolding of that. The time has come. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, the seed of the first woman. Now we have another seed of another woman. And, And only in two places do we have a reference to the seed of the woman. And in this context, it alludes to that woman, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So the New Testament era is the fullness of time, and particular, particularly the coming of Messiah, the Incarnation. And the big question is, in the minds of the first century people and throughout history, is who do people say that the Son of Man is? And basically the Gospels reveal the, the essential essence of, of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And when we look at Messiah, we can summarize a few implications. There's many, but one of them that we want to look at is this incarnation where God becomes man. So God himself is going to fulfill all of those prophetic passages And he's going to do it through his son, who is basically deity. So we could spend a lot of time on that. And in the New Testament portion of kind of the next course, we look at some of the details on the incarnation. And on his ministry, we can focus on his ministry as well. And the only thing I want to kind of draw out from that by way of foundations to eschatology, we need to look at the kingdom because that is one of the major elements of all of eschatology. It predicts the kingdom. Everything else is related to the kingdom. Even the coming of Messiah, he's the king that will reign during the kingdom. So he's the focus there. So let's take a look briefly at the kingdom. And this is important eschatologically because if you understand what Jesus offered then there's no way that you can come up with amillennialism. No way you can come up with postmillennialism. And you have to rethink that. So, And all of those ideas came about, I think, as a result of later time of a neglect of kind of the Old Testament concept of the kingdom and also in terms of the New Testament, what did Jesus actually offer? And I think there are enough little details in the offer of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ to come to the conclusion 
that the kingdom that he offered is the has all of the elements that we looked at when we talked about the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. That's what the Jewish people anticipated. And he's speaking to a Jewish audience, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, which is written to Jews, and those Jewish people expected and anticipated a coming kingdom. And there were lots of scriptures that they would think about. They were, And we'll look at many of them when we speak specifically of the kingdom. But that kingdom, Jesus is describing a kingdom with some characteristics of the kingdom that we looked at in the Old Testament. And if you remember, remember some of the characteristics, the nation of Israel is prominent. It's uh, guaranteed by the Davidic covenant. It's going to bring a era of peace and prosperity. In other words, Israel's enemies are going to be subdued and controlled. It's going to have not only a godly king, as God intended for the nation of Israel, but what kind of a king? Human king. Well, human, but... In the line of David. David. In the line of David, but... Everlasting. Everlasting, but... (laughs) Holy and righteous. Holy and righteous, but... (laughs) Sinless. Don't, Don't forget that. That's the major difference between the Messianic king and David himself. Remember, David was a murderer and an adulterer, and, but he was godly in that he repented. But that is the type of king that Israel anticipated. A, maybe it was probably not clear in their thinking, but they were thinking in terms of a godly king at least, and we know that Jesus was sinless. Since we're going to be picky, I, I got we're going to be very picky. Yeah. <laughs> I may be wrong about this, too, I, And I had not noticed this on that Galatians passage Mm -hmm. where it says, redeem those under the law. Under the law. There's no article in the original. And that didn't make sense to me. Isn't it those born under law? Yeah. Wouldn't it be under law, not the law? If there's an article there, that's probably a legitimate translation. Yes. But it's the way they show it there, it's got the capital L. Yeah. And the translation. And in general, when you're, we're thinking of law, we're thinking of specific you know, mosaic. The people of Israel under the law. Yeah. The mosaic covenant, mosaic law. Well, the reason I wonder if thought about that is because I don't want to be left out. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't guarantee it, but the New Testament guarantees you will be left out. Amen to that one. But well, last week, Jeremiah, you said in Jeremiah that that, that covenant is for Judah and... Uh, well, that's yeah. the new covenant. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So yeah, right. That's they, They're the ones who are under the law, and he came to offer that to them. Yes. We yeah. from it. Yeah. <laughs> and did I expand on that? Did I forget to expand on that Not in terms lot. of how Not we are? Yeah. Not a lot. Somewhere we'll expand on it. <laughs> okay. But what's very important when we talk about New Testament... The Gospels, I think it's very crystal clear. And again, you have to stretch the language to come up with anything different. The kingdom that Jesus offered was the kingdom that the Jewish people anticipated. He didn't modify it. He didn't change it. He didn't abandon the the kingdom that was prophesied. And we saw that even the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament has prophetic, prophetic prediction. I mentioned it's within the covenant. The Abrahamic covenant speaks of coming kings. Deuteronomy gives a specification concerning the kings. So it was a a literal, real, earthly kingdom that they anticipated. 
And in the first century, they anticipated a Messiah that would deliver them from basically the domination of the Roman Empire. That's the kind of king they were looking for. And real quickly, Jesus offered that kingdom. In fact, he offered the kingdom that we specified when we talked about, remember I gave you the characteristics of that kingdom. Hmm? That's Matthew. All of these are Matthew. Back in, in Samuel's season, why was it offensive? <laughs> Good question. The answer that we gave last week was, if you look at the details of the text, the people wanted a king and a very important little phrase in there, like all the other nations. In other words, they wanted a secular king. They wanted they didn't want to be different in the way that God wanted them to be. But uh, the issue is not that God didn't want them to have a king. The timing was wrong for one, and their motivation for one, and their whole vision for one was all wrong. And I think in that context, I see the desire to have a king is just from the flesh, for one thing, wrong timing, wrong motivation as well. It's not that God did not intend a king, because all of that is prophesied. In fact, it talks about the scepter. In other words, that's a kingdom, not departing from Judah in Genesis. Deuteronomy gives the specifications for the king. In other words, what the king is supposed to do, he's supposed to read the law and all these other things. And even in the Abrahamic covenant, it predicts kings or descendants from Abraham. So God intended a kingdom with a real king. The timing was off. Motivation was wrong, etc. Does that answer it? And Jesus offered that kingdom. Chapter 3, we won't read them, but that's, that's, these are in Matthew, that's John the Baptist. When he came, he basically announced the coming of the kingdom. And in every Jewish mind, they're thinking of the Davidic kingdom that would have a human king, that there'd be release from oppression, guaranteed by the Davidic covenant, which we looked at all of the specific physical aspects to it, earthly aspects. It also had a temple, a kingdom with a temple in Jerusalem. Remember all that last week? Okay. That's what John the Baptist offered. And when Jesus, in Matthew's account, kicks off his ministry, he basically offers the kingdom, the kingdom of of heaven is how he describes it in 4.17, Matthew 4.17. So it's offered. That's the kingdom that's offered. The main theme of the whole book of Matthew is Jesus as this messianic king. That messianic king who will establish that kingdom that the Jewish people envisioned. So throughout the book, you have relationships to the kingdom, and one of them is the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. The Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom, and it's to prepare people to enter the kingdom. Now, it's applicable to today as well, not just to the first century church, because we are preparing ourselves for that kingdom, and there's principles there that we can learn. But it was designed for the Jewish people to prepare because the kingdom was offered. So they're to prepare for the kingdom. Uh, There's different views on it, but I've kind of summarized, I think, the best view there. So that's preparation for the kingdom. The whole gospel is moving in the direction of the messianic king establishing a kingdom. So the king authenticates that he is the messianic king in chapters 8 and 9. And how does he do that? 
at least two very clear ways where the king vindicates that he is, in fact, that promised messianic king. What do you have in those two chapters? And they're kind of lumped together. They're not necessarily chronological, but you have a series of miracles. And they're miracles that, uh, without a doubt, demonstrate his deity. In other words, he has omnipotent power. He has power over the natural realm. He has power over the demonic world. He has power over the physical healing area, mankind's infirmities and needs. He's authenticating. He's also, secondly, fulfilling prophecy concerning the messianic king so he authenticates he is the king he is qualified to establish the kingdom but in the life of christ early on publicly he's very popular he's popular with the masses but in the religious community you have growing opposition and i like to put a whole book on one slide and here's kind of part of matthew and i'll give you the next part in a moment So you have this increasing popularity amongst ordinary people and increasing opposition by the religious leaders. Kind of a climactic point or a turning point in the life of Christ is chapter 12. I don't know if we... Did we read that somewhere along? We get things mixed up here. Teach somewhere else and I don't know where I'm at. Somebody read 12... What is it? 14. Matthew 12, 14. This is kind of the high point in Matthew's gospel, but I take it also the high point of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Who's got it? But the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. Okay. Now, this is a little bit later in his ministry, but not the very end. But from this point on... Everything else is going to kind of get us moving in the direction of the ultimate destruction of the Messiah. So you have the plot hatched and it's revealed there. And in the Gospel of Matthew, I think Matthew, one of the main things that Matthew is explaining, if Jesus is the Messianic King, he's prepared his people for the kingdom. He's demonstrated that he is the the only one that qualifies to establish the kingdom. What happened to the kingdom? What happened to it? Well, you have the plot there. There's a turning point. What's the next chapter after chapter 12? And don't say 13. (laughs) Chapter 13. Teaching of parables. Teaching of parables, but what kind of parables specifically? Parables of the kingdom, exactly. So we have the rejection by the religious leaders, 1214. And now we have what Jesus describes as a mystery form of the kingdom. It's not an amillennial kingdom. It's kind of an interim way that God is going to deal. God is going to reign in an interim way until you got to keep reading in the Gospel of Matthew to see what happened to that kingdom. He didn't introduce a, a new form or, or a new... It's a new form in the sense that... God continues to reign, but it's not the millennial kingdom, or it's not the messianic kingdom. So in parables, he's explaining kind of this delay. There's going to be a period of time that's going to be a delay in the establishment of the kingdom. And on that chart, I'll bring it back up in a moment, but you might have noticed that his ministry is going to be focused less publicly and more privately to disciples. And it starts in chapter 13. 
And the reason he speaks in parables, he explains it. There's a, at least a twofold, there's actually a threefold reason, but there's two that are very clear in the passage itself. The first one is what? Matthew 13. The only ones who can understand the parables are those who are going into the kingdom. The, the one rejected or can't understand. The exactly. In fact, there's a, it's grace, actually. The more revelation that we are exposed to, the more revelation we're responsible for, to respond to. The rejection has already been made. The conclusion is, is that the miracles are done by the power of Beelzebub. That's chapter 12. So they have rejected truth. They've rejected Messiah. He's going to speak in a way that they're not going to be able to understand. Those that have rejected, he's going to speak in a mysterious way, in parables. This is a mystery, the the mystery of the kingdom. It's a mystery form. In other words, it's not revealed in the Old Testament. This is not anywhere in the New Testament. There's an interim period of time that he's introducing. Eric, did you? I was just thinking that well, like the, the parable of the sower and the seed in Matthew 13, the disciples didn't understand it either. No. They went to him and asked yes. to explain it. And he explained Some it. kind of a humbling, almost a grace type, hey, help us, please. Yes. What's your mercy here? Exactly. And he did. So it was vague enough, those that were not sensitive, they had no clue what he was talking about. And even, as Eric's pointing out, those that were sensitive... They still need further the revelation to understand them. So those that were sensitive and open to revelation, it explained to them this new approach, if you will, or new form, if you want, using the same phrase there. And from chapter 13 on, he's preparing his disciples to die because he's going to ultimately and totally be rejected by the nation. Matthew still hasn't answered. What happened to the kingdom? Well, 21, 42 through 43... Mark, you want to read uh, 21? This, these are all in Matthew 42 and 43. Matthew makes it clear what happened to the kingdom. If you were a Jewish person in the first century, you would have asked Matthew, what happened to the kingdom? Here it is. Here's the answer. Jesus said to them, did you never read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to to a people producing the fruit of it. What's the answer? What happened to the kingdom? Read the slide. It's removed from that generation. And the implication is, and as you read further and you see the unfolding of history, there's going to be a gap of time between that generation and some other generation that's going to be more receptive to the kingdom. So the kingdom is not abandoned, the kingdom is not done away with, the kingdom is not modified to become an amillennial one. It is removed from that generation, and if you keep reading in the Gospel of Matthew, three days before his crucifixion, he tells us in Matthew 24 and 25, Matthew does and Jesus does, that that kingdom is postponed. And he gives the details, that's his eschatological exposition. That's the Olivet Discourse. And in that... He gives them a thumbnail sketch of Jewish eschatology that's going to follow. Does that make sense? And what's going to follow is there's going to be a terrible time in the future where the Jewish people are going to be brought to a point of utter helplessness, if you will. And it's in that context that Israel is going to respond to their Messiah. Messiah is going to deliver them. And he's going to come like a warrior, that Messiah that they envisioned coming to
to deliver them from, in their thinking, the Roman Empire. We know eschatologically it's going to be a revived Roman Empire. But the Jewish people await that deliverance after a severe period of discipline. The Messiah will appear. Matthew 25 gives us three parables that relate to what? The kingdom of heaven. Parable, three parables of the kingdom. Look at verse 1, and there's several little verses in there. 25 1. That's right. Got it? Go ahead and read it since you're, you got it. Doubting you. <laughs> you need to. You need to, to be a Berean. <laughs> At a time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Okay. That's immediately after the second coming. Now there's parables that precede it, those are applicational. In other words, what should we be doing now? And some of them emphasize the aspect of serving. In other words, we should be actively serving until the Messiah returns. But when he returns, he's going to establish that kingdom. It's a Jewish kingdom. So Matthew answers the question, what happened to the kingdom? It's postponed. It's not eliminated. It's not abandoned. It's not modified. It's postponed, and it'll come when this period, awful period of time comes, and Messiah returns and delivers the children of Israel. Israel has a future. Makes sense? So here's the rest of Matthew, except for 28, which is the resurrection chapter. So the disciples are prepared privately, and then 21 through 22 is the ultimate rejection, where they carry out the plan that eventually eventuates in the cross. They plot to kill him, and on the cross they do it. And we say theologically, not just the Jewish nation, but humanity in general. So there's Matthew all on one slide. Then you have Resurrection, chapter 28. You need to put that up there too. So that's Messiah, and that's his ministry, or the focus of the ministry. He offers the kingdom, he's rejected, and the kingdom is postponed, and the kingdom will come in the future when the Messiah returns. So we have the death, we have the resurrection, we have his ascension. We speak of each of those, but we want to focus on eschatology. So we have the fulfillment. Eschatologically, we have the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament in the coming of Messiah. The Messiah is rejected, however. So there's this interim age. We know it as church age. And the disciples... Even Paul thought that Messiah might return in their lifetime. They had no idea, and Jesus didn't give them a time frame, didn't let them set dates. In fact, what did the disciples ask in Acts chapter 1? This is after the resurrection. They're setting up the, the, the kingdom now, the, yeah. the physical one. Yeah, verse 6. You got it? Why don't you read it? And how does Jesus answer it? 1-6, right? Yep. It's not for you to know. you got other things to do. That's right. So when, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? Or to Israel. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all of Judea and Samaria, and even the remotest part of the Very good. And that gives you kind of an outline of the whole book of Acts. Mm-hmm. And gives them what they're to do. In other words, don't worry about this age or any ages. So even there, he's telling them they can anticipate a longer period of time than even their lifetime. 
So even, dur- even during their ministry, they, they had in view a real physical yes. kingdom of God. This is after his death, his resurrection, and then in the same chapter we have his ascension. Exactly. So there's a church age, and there's a coming king and a kingdom. That's the eschatology in all of that. Just a closing thought on this slide thing. Our sovereign Lord prepared the world for the coming of Messiah. We're doing that. When you said uh, eschatological fulfillment of all prophecy, were you talking about what Matthew covered? Uh, How did you mean that? I'm not sure I understand your question. Well, when you finished uh, going through Matthew and you went to the eschatology, and you made a comment about something about the first thing you had in there was fulfillment of prophecy. Oh, concerning Messiah, Jesus fulfilled in every aspect the, the prophecies pertaining to Messiah. Not completely, potentially completely. In other words, had the nation accepted him, now this is, this is speculative or whatever, had they received their Messiah, he would have still had to die. Roman Empire would have crucified him. He still would have had to die. He still would have risen from the dead. He still would have, perhaps there had been an interim period of time. In fact, Acts chapter 3 is a reoffer of the Messiah as king and the reoffer of the kingdom. It could have happened in the first century, theoretically. And he could have established the kingdom. In fact, I've got a slide to that effect. So that's the introduction.